Welcome to Midtown again. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here, uh, and we are delighted to have you with us. We are in week two of a brand new sermon series on the book of Genesis. Actually, just the first 11 chapters of Genesis is what we're walking through this spring. Uh, quick backstory uh, Moses, the prophet, the, the prophet who would lead God's people out of slavery. Uh, from Egypt into the promised land, Moses writes Genesis to a group of millions of former slaves that had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It's all they'd ever known. And Moses is with these people who all they've known is slavery, all they've known is enslavement, all they've known is that man up there, Pharaoh, owns me, and I'm forced to worship him and his gods. And now this man, Moses, shows up and says he's leading us out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the wilderness to the promised land from some God he met in the wilderness. Who is this God, Moses, and who are you and who are we? They have no idea who they are. They have no idea who their God is. They've heard the stories passed down, but they don't really know. And so Moses says, let me tell you who you are by telling you who your God is. Here's the story of how it all began. So Moses writes Genesis to tell a people who their God is and who they are too. And the same is true for us. We're studying these first 11 chapters of Genesis to learn who the God of Israel is and in so doing who we are Two. So last week we looked at just the first two verses of Genesis chapter one um, and we saw that the God who made everything is also the God who knows everything, which includes us. And this intimate God and his infinite knowledge knows us deeply as well. So we're gonna continue in Genesis one. We will move a little bit uh, more quickly through Genesis one. We're not just gonna go two verses at a time. We're gonna read kind of the rest of the creation account in Genesis chapter one, all the way through verse 27. So it is on, no matter what Bible you brought, it is on page one, uh, and you can turn to page one, and, or it'll be on the screens if you don't have a Bible with you. Genesis 1, 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's what we looked at last week. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. That's weird. And God made the expanse that, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or skies is the same Hebrew word. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for the signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm and swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, so one of the problems, if you have heard this passage read or discussed this passage with friends or even just read it yourself to ponder these things, one of the problems, if you've come to this text over the last 100 or 200 years, is that everyone generally has been culturally conditioned that our first question when we come to this text is not a bad question, it's just not the right question. It's not the question that this text was meant to answer. We come to this text, especially in the West, and we say, cool story, but how did it happen? I want to know about the evolution, and I want to know about the science, and I want to know the mechanics, and I want to know how exactly did God do this, and how does this account make sense with what our modern mind now knows to be scientifically true? I hear the story of creation, but I don't hear any explanation of the creation, and I'm found wanting. How did this happen? Which is a fine question. It's a good question. It's not a wrong question. It's just not the question that Genesis 1 is ever going to answer for you. And it's unfortunate because how questions are never as important as why questions. Thank you, Simon Sinek. Start with why. Imagine somebody gives you a present on Christmas and you open it up and it's an iPad or a drone or whatever the kids are playing with these days. And it's some piece of technology that you've never played with. You've never uh, used yourself, but someone who knows you, knows you'd love it, gave it to you. Imagine that the first thing, if you open, you rip off the wrapping paper and you open it up and you see the iPad box or the drone box and you go, oh my goodness, I wonder how they made this in the factory. (laughs) The other person would say, man, you're a total buzzkill. But also, why is that your first question? Like, this is not, you wouldn't go, man, I wonder what instruments they use to weld the pieces together. That would not be your first question. Your first question would be, oh my goodness, I've wondered what these for so long, I can't wait to start using it. What is this supposed to be used for? What is the purpose for which this beautiful product was made? And how am I going to use it now? Why was it made? And also, why did you give it to me? Why did you, the giver, think that this gift was suitable and fitting for me? Because why questions are way better than how questions. It's a lot like coming to Genesis 1. God wrote Genesis 1. We believe Moses wrote Genesis 1, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he never intended on having Genesis 1 be the way in which we would get our 20 2023 scientific, rational, logical questions answered. Doesn't mean there aren't answers to those questions. It just means that Genesis 1 wasn't written to answer those questions. And so if we demand that Genesis 1 answer those questions for us, we will be severely disappointed. 
But Genesis 1 is not interested in the how, it's interested in the why. It wants you to know why God made the world and why he chose to put you in it. That's what Genesis 1 is for. Genesis 1 is not a science book. In fact, it's so not a science book, it's almost the complete opposite of a science book. Because Genesis 1 wants to show you something beautiful and it wants to draw you into that beauty. It wants to show you the glory of the one who made the world. It would be kind of like if you woke up in the Rocky Mountains, you took a trip out there and you, you finally got to your cabin and it was night and you got in and you went to bed and you woke up in the morning and in the master suite was a giant window pane and outside of that window, through the window, was the glory of the grandeur of the snow-capped Rockies. And you woke up and you thought, man, the sun is shining and I'm beholding the glory of what I came out here to see. It would be the same ridiculous thought if you woke up and you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, how did they make this window frame? (laughs) Like, I wonder where they harvested the wood for to get this window frame in place. You would go, hey, dude, look through the window frame. Like, this window frame is here and it does serve a purpose, and some master craftsman may have built it, and you can find all those answers to the how they made it and where they got their supplies from. You can ask all those questions. Just don't let yourself be caught up in the wrong questions right now. Because what The window frame is meant to show you is the beauty of what is behind it. It's meant to actually let you see, oh my goodness, what are these Rocky Mountains? That's not like Genesis 1. I'm not saying that the how questions are wrong. I'm saying that Genesis 1 is meant to show you the why. And would you get lost in a minute? Would you get lost for, for a minute in the grandeur of what it is trying to show you, the God who made it? The writer of Genesis 1 in no way attempts to explain creation which can be infuriating for people who demand explanations. What he wants us to do is to get caught up with the wonder and the awe of creation. And he does so with a poem, kind of. It's kind of a poem. It's kind of a narrative. It's kind of a song. In fact, a lot of Old Testament scholars would say that there is nothing like Genesis 1 in all the ancient world. It's kind of this heightened, poetic story that someone should get that. But it, it's, it's this, Genesis 1 is this, is this piece of literature that doesn't really have any comparisons in the ancient world because it's dealing with something that doesn't really need or have an explanation in the way that we would want it to have an explanation. It's meant to show us the beauty. And so this heightened poetic story comes to us in Genesis 1. Isn't it fascinating that the maker of the cosmos decided to tell the world about the story of the creation of the world in a poem. And so what does this creation story in a poem form, what does it show us? You thought I was never gonna come over here, didn't you? What does it show us about the maker? What is this creation poem trying to show us? Well, we read the whole chapter almost. We'll we'll get to the other sections uh, in chapter one next week. But We're told in verse two, we looked at last week, these really weird Hebrew words, tovu vavohu, which is Hebrew literal for empty and wasteland, but it it comes to us in most translations of formless and void. Okay, so the God who sets out to make the world that we're told in verse two about, not the problem, but what we're dealing with. We have a formless, chaotic cosmos. It's formless and void. It's tovu vavohu. And so Genesis one through two sets up the problem for you. Here is the tension. We have a formless and void nothingness. 
And so God gets to work. He starts in verse three, and he begins with the creation days, and he sets out to do something about this formless and void state. And he gets to work. And so Genesis chapter one, verse three says, and God said, let there be. And this is what will carry on the whole poem is God saying and God speaking and his words creating the very reality that we live in. And on the first day, what was formerly formless, he creates light and dark. He actually separates them. He says, let there be light and he separates the light from the dark. And then the second day, he separates the waters from the skies So now he's giving some more form to what was formless. First it was light and dark. He's separating it out. And then it's light. And now it's it's skies and, and heavens and waters. And he's separating that out. And then it's land and waters. And so if we pause here for just a second, we see, okay, wait, wait, wait. This God who was dealing with a formless nothingness reality has now brought some really structural form to what was formerly formless. And so pause for just a minute. Do you know that the God of Genesis 1, that the God of Scripture, that the God of Israel loves order? He loves bringing form to what was formerly formless. This is why you love a made bed, even though you can't agree with your spouse on how to do it and how many throw pillows you need. But this is why you love order. This is why you love when the dishes are neatly done. This is why you love when laundry is folded. This is why you love a clean desk. But don't stop there. This is why you love clarity when things are vague. This is why you love when there is formlessness in relationship. Can someone bring some form to this? We're in a dialogue and this is not, we're not, we're missing each other. This is, you're not hearing what I'm saying and I'm not hearing what you're saying. It feels very formless. Can someone bring some form to this? This is why you love when relationships get defined. Thank you, ladies, right? This is why, this is why it's really helpful. Clarity is kindness, that you would go, hey, this is formless, but I know that the God of the world loves bringing form where there is formlessness. I know that he loves order and he's a God who perfectly made order in what was formerly formless. It's been said before that he's creating the realms and in a minute, we'll talk about this, he's gonna fill those realms, but before we get there, if you can kind of experience the joy of the God who made all this, bringing all this delight to what was formerly completely orderless, it kind of starts to sound like this God who was dealing with formlessness and the form he's bringing is building playgrounds. It's been said, Matt Ackerman, my counterpart here, the executive pastor here, his life mission is to build playgrounds for people to play on. And he actually built the one out here, but it's even bigger than that. It's why he loves order. It's why he loves functionality. It's why he loves doing things the right way, doing things so that it will last. Let's build a structure so that when that structure is built, it's going to last and people can enjoy this form. It's why Enneagram Ones exist, okay? Not me. But it's why people love bringing order where there is chaos, is what God's doing in the first three days. And then we get to the other three days of creation and acting in creation. Days four, five, and six. And it starts to make a lot of sense. It starts to go, oh, look at this beauty. Look at what's happening with the order and the creativity. Because on day four, he makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. Do you know where sun and moon and stars inhabit? Do you know what, where they dwell? Do you know what they fill up? They fill the light and the dark. They fill, they fill in the form that they were made for. They fill it up. And then in the next day, he makes the, the sea creatures... And the birds, where do they dance and play and find their meaning and find their purpose? In the water and the skies. And then on day six, the final day, he makes animals and beasts and he makes mankind. 
Where do, the, where do those creatures inhabit and dance and delight and play? On land that he separates out on day three. And so what was formerly formless, he gives form to, and what was formerly empty and void, he fills. And this is, you can imagine the childlikeness of God, like when you give your children Christmas presents that you want them to enjoy, you build it out, you stay up on Christmas Eve and you build it out so that when they come downstairs, they can fill it so that they can enjoy what you have made for them. This is exactly what God's doing. He's saying, I made all this for you to enjoy it. Now, will you go what was formerly void? Will you fill it? Will you enjoy it? Will you dance in it? Will you delight in it? I made it with delight so that you would enjoy it. Would you go do that? So you can see again, as we kind of step back from this, this is, we just kind of breeze through the six days of creation, but you're meant to kind of take it all in like that. Like, look at the, look at the stars dancing and the sea creatures swimming. Look at all of this. We're meant to kind of go, what in the, who is this God who makes with such delight, who makes with such purpose, who makes with such beauty, who makes with such orderliness? We can get lost in the how questions, but it's not meant to answer our how questions. It's meant to wrap us up in its delight. Can you imagine reading Genesis 1, seeing it for kind of what it is? It was formless and void, and now it's not. And it was, it was, it was chaotic and dark, and now it's not. It's filled and going, I wonder how they made this window frame. Dude, look at the Rockies. Look at what's behind you. Look, at, look through what it was made to show you. Look at the God who made it. Can you see for a moment the creative joy of this maker? Can you see for a moment that he is inviting you in this song of creation, in this poem of creation, to come and simply behold what kind of God he is? And look, the writer is a smart dude, Moses, okay? And he, he, he's trying to do something for his slaves that he's giving Genesis to. He knows that there are apparent contradictions and problems. But poems aren't meant to unresolve all of those for us. He knows that on day one, and, on day one there is light and dark, but on day four is where we get our light sources. So what created the light on day one if the light sources didn't come till day four? Don't know. Moses doesn't care. Moses isn't going to answer that question that you have because he's not codependent, okay? He's not going, oh, well, they asked, so I have to provide an explanation. He's going, hey, will you see the joy? Will you see the beauty? Like, okay, so sun is how we measure our days. The sun is how we measure our time. The sun is how we know when it's day and when it's night. So if, a, if the sun is how we measure our days, where does Moses get off calling days one, two, and three days to begin with? Moses doesn't care that you have that question, okay? Moses is going, hey, you're, you're staring at the window frame. I'm not saying that there aren't answers to those questions. There is so much that has been written about this. You could exhaust yourself and actually find some answers to some of those questions. Genesis 1 just isn't, isn't gonna do it for you because that's not why it was written. Genesis 1 is meant to have you behold something, namely the God who made it. Would you notice his intentionality? Would you notice his thoughtfulness? Would you notice his beauty? This is why day after day in the Genesis 1 account, we're told that God saw all that he had made and it was good. This is the refrain that keeps coming to us throughout the poem that is trying to get the reader, trying to get the listener to say, everything he's doing is good. This certain creation project was so very good that the writer actually wants to tell you how good it was in more ways than one. It's been said of a sermon or songwriting, don't tell people that it's good, make it good. <laughs> like you don't just need to keep saying it was good, it was good, it was good. Just make it good and the people will be in, in ca you know, captured by its beauty. 
So he tells us that it's good, but that's not the only way that he tries to tell us that it's good. This is one aspect that blew my mind as I was studying it this week. The way that the beauty and the completeness and the goodness is bursting off the page. So if you're an ancient Near East person, Eastern or Western, but in, especially in Eastern cultures, the number seven means a lot to you. It means a lot. It means completeness. It means perfection. It means there's nothing wrong with this picture. It has run its normal cycle, the cycle of the seven. The, it's perfect and it's complete. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word for the number seven is, the, is a homonym, like sounds the exact same as the word for perfection and complete. So literally, when you're, when you're saying the number seven, you're also thinking, this is beautiful, this is complete. So the number seven is bursting through the poem like in, in, in like an astronomical way. Seven is all over the poem. This blew my mind, discovering this this week. There's, there's a Hebrew scholar who wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis. His name is Umberto Casuto, so you know he's smart. But he, he's, he's a rabbinical scholar, and listen to the observations that he makes connecting the number seven to the poem. Listen to how much seven is just bursting off the page. These are just a few of his observations. Okay, so after the introductory verse, chapter one, verse one, the section then gets divided into seven paragraphs, each of which deal with the seven days. In the very first verse, the three nouns, God, heavens, earth, all go on to appear in the poem a multiple of seven times. So God appears 35 times, heavens and earth appears 21 times. The phrase, and God said, let there be, appears seven times. The terms for light and day appear seven times in the first paragraph. And the term for light in the fourth paragraph appears seven times. The term for water is mentioned seven times. The term for living creature appears seven times. And it was good appears seven times. And we didn't read this, but the last and it was good is a, it was very good. It was seven good and it was perfectly good. So seven and it was goods. The very first verse in Hebrew has seven words. The very second verse in Hebrew has 14 words, two times seven. And we didn't read this. We'll study it in the coming weeks. The seventh paragraph of the poem, which deals with the seventh day, has three Hebrew sentences in it. Each of those three sentences has seven words in it, and the middle word, the fourth word in each of those three sentences in the seventh paragraph, which deals with the seventh day, is the word seven. Okay, so here's what this Jewish scholar says about this. To suppose that all this is a mere coincidence is not possible. <laughs> He's basically saying like, hey, hey, do you get it? Like seven is trying to scream at you. And if you were a, a Jew, if you were a Hebrew listening to this in the wilderness, you would have been like, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed with the fact that this poem is seven, 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 everywhere. Because what God made is perfect. He took what was formless and void and he gave form to it and then he filled it and he said, go enjoy the creation. Go play on the playground that I made for you. You can, God is spirit, so God doesn't have a face like we would imagine it, but you can imagine the smile on God's face as he's making this. Look at what I've made for you. Go enjoy it. Go dance, go sing, go play, because that's how I made it. But it's not just good, like we would call it good. And isn't it interesting? I love this. Isn't it interesting that when God creates and then it says, and God saw that he had made and, and said that it was good. Um, who was there telling God that it was good? Like what audience did he have to go, 
Good job, good job. Or did he just make it and so enjoy making it that he can just call it good and he doesn't need the audience to tell him that it was good? He's not like waiting for the applause of the angels like, Gabriel, did you like what I just like? Did you? No, he's just enjoying it going, this is so good. This is so good. But it's not just good in the way that we would define that word good. Jewish scholars would tell you that the word, the little Hebrew word that gets used over and over and over that says this is good is a little Hebrew word called tov. Tov, and it was tov, which doesn't just mean that it was good like on a rating scale and it was good. The Hebrew word tov means this, it's good for something. Like the purpose for which it was made, it's, it's good for that. Like it will, it will do what it was meant to do. It will serve the purpose for which I made it. It was good, it was good. Creation was made for something and it was tov. It was good for that like a kitchen appliance or like a tool that you, like that, that KitchenAid mixer is, is tov. Like it's good for what it was made to do. It's good. And so we'll dive into this a little bit next week when we talk about the, the mandate given to Adam and Eve in these, in these verses. But would you dare to believe for a moment that the masterful maker is making this creation and he's calling it good because he's setting the stage for something. He didn't just make it just to be enjoyed. That is part of it. He made it because he wants to write a story in it. The purpose of his creation is he's setting the scene for how the story is going to play out. And he says about that story, this creation is good for it. It was made to tell a story that I'm gonna write and it's good for it. The why of creation We don't come to Genesis 1 demanding how questions. We come asking the why question. The why of creation is the entire reason why scripture decides to bring us the creation account in this way anyway. It's that the whole reason for the light and the dark, the whole reason for the waters and the skies, the whole reason for the animals and mankind, all of it is to tell a story that God is gonna unfold in the world. God wanted to write a story. And so can you see this masterfully working good God make a good creation and then step back, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, step back on day seven and go, ah, and it was very good. Do you see the joy? Do you see the order? Do you see the beauty that was in the beginning? So if it's all so good, what happened? We'll study it in a few weeks. But when all of this gets decimated by deceit, when all this gets vandalized by sin and the whole created order gets covered in the darkness of shame, when you now know that this is God going, it's good, it's good, look at the delight, look at the creation, look at what I made it for, and then you realize in a couple chapters it's all about to be decimated, Maybe we could ask this question. Do you think, knowing what you can now maybe see about the Rockies of God's creation, do you think he's done with his creation even though it's been decimated? If God spent this much time, gave this much thought, used this much creativity, making what was formless and void then have form and be filled, do you think he's done with it? What do you he think What do you think he intends on doing with this creation? That if you can behold the why of this original creation, if you can go, okay, 
It was made for us to enjoy. It was playgrounds for us to play on. It was delight so that we might enjoy it. If we kind of begin to understand the why and the God who made it that stands behind it, you might actually begin to feed something really, really powerful in you, the word hope. And here's what I mean by that. Yes, the world is shattered. No, the world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. But when you see how it all started, when you see the God who loves his creation, do you think he wants to give up on it? Or is there hope that the story's not over yet? This is the God who loves his creation. And is it possible that the God who loves his creation, is it possible that the God who loved creating the world might not intend on burning the world to the ground so he can vape us all out of here? But maybe... Just maybe that just because everything's been shattered doesn't mean that the story is over yet. What do you think this good God wants to do with his very good creation? You think he wants to burn us all into smithereens so that we can exist like spirit angels for all eternity? Or is it possible that the God who made this world actually wants to come and restore this world? Because when stuff breaks that you don't care about, you throw it out. I did it with a load of laundry two weeks ago. Long story. It was a bad load. Threw it out. I don't care about it. We're in marital counseling. It's fine. But when you, when you, when things you love though get wounded, you want to heal them. Do you think when you hear the God of Genesis 1 and what he's done, and how he made it, why he made it, and the purpose, and the delight, and the form, and the joy. You think he wants to throw it out? Or do you think because it's been wounded, he wants to heal it? Like, I'm not throwing, well, I'm throwing a little shade. Kirk Cameron left behind. They may be great movies, I have no idea. Not biblical. Not the story of the hope of the world. Not what God intends on doing with the world. Because when stuff you don't care about gets ruined, you throw it out. But when things or people you love get wounded, you want to heal them. And so is it possible that the same God who danced and sang in the poem of creation actually intends on a new creation? Is it possible that that actually is what he intends on doing with what has been disrupted? Is it possible that that's what the future of the world is? That the God who once and who originally made the mountains and the seas and the flowers and the birds and the beasts, he wants the whole creation to be made new again. Is it possible? And the, the Bible actually gets pretty clear about this. This new creation, because God, the God who made the original creation intends on remaking, intends on restoring, intends on, intends on destroying what the locust has eaten in the world. The Bible actually says, this is so what's coming. This is so the end. This is so the hope of the Christian and of the kingdom. That do you know who gets this more than we do? The created order. The Bible actually says that creation knows this more than we do. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 8. Will, I got a slide for this. Romans 8 says this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's the end of the story. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The creation of Genesis 1 knows what it was made for. It knows the tove that it once possessed. It was good for something. And now something's ruined it. Is the story over? Creation, we're told in Romans 8, just said it like three times. Creation is groaning. Like the trees and the birds and the flowers and the, and the, and the beasts, like they're all going, oh, like this is not the way it's supposed to be. This, we were made for much more. In fact, the Psalms do use this language over and over again that when kingdom comes, when the new creation arrives, that the trees will clap their hands and the oceans and the rivers will sing. Can you like, and it, it, that is metaphorical, but it's also like, can you imagine that? Because they're all going, we've been waiting for this because we know it more than you know it. We know what we were made for. We know it was good. We know God delighted in it and now it's been decimated. We know this is coming. And so when there's another police killing in Memphis and when there's another woman sold into sex trafficking and there's another tornado that scrapes through a small town and there's another divorce and another abortion and another war and another wildfire, every Christian on the planet with great conviction and with great hope should be able in peace to say this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And it won't always be this way. But this is not what God intended. This is not what creation was for. And so I so believe that this is not what creation is for, that the God who made it this way is not gonna leave it this way. And so when we see the sin-shattered world around us in our relationships and our jobs and in our vocations and in our families and we see it all, we can with great confidence say, one day. And how do I know this? I know it through a bunch of scripture, but man, does Genesis 1 scream it. Because the God who made it certainly does not intend on throwing it out. He intends on restoring it. He intends on making it right again. The creation poem gives the Christian great hope for the new creation. And our hope for the world to come is ground and built on the reality of how much attention, detail, creativity, joy, order, and beauty God poured out in the song of Genesis 1. This is the God who loves his creation. Do you think he wants to give up on it? And maybe a deeper question, because you can kind of answer that theoretically. Do you think he wants to give up on you? Are you too far gone? Or has your life been too decimated? Is there too much addiction? Is there too much shame? Is there too much, you've already messed too much up? Well, we'll dive into some of this next week. But every scholar would tell you, and I've read every scholar, okay. Uh, every scholar I read, which is a lot this week, would tell you that in the dancing and delighting of the poem unfolding in Genesis 1, the pace of it all, I mean, he's making the stars and the galaxies, he's making the mountains, he's making it all. And then when it gets to day six, the second half of day six, when he begins to make man and woman, the poem pace slows way down. And that's intentional. It's like stars, moon, sun, fish, birds. And then, whew, he gives so much attention and so much more detail when he's making humans. It's because mankind is the crescendo of this creation. 
that we would say that it slows down to draw our attention into the thing that God was doing all of this for anyway. And so connect these dots, connect these gospel dots with me. If God intends on a new creation because of how much delight and joy he brought in the original creation, and that gives the Christian hope for the world is not as it should be, but one day it will, and mankind is the crescendo of that creation, what do you think his plan is with you? And is it possible that as the crescendo of creation, that with all the passion that the master builder and master poem writer is doing as he's throwing out the stars and making the world, is it possible that with all that mastery, when it gets to the verses about man and woman, you don't just see a master builder, you see the heart of a father looking at his newborn kids? If you've ever had kids, you know this moment, like when they hand them to you in the, in the hospital, you go, this, this is mine. Like, look at the one made in my image. Look at this. This is how God feels about the crescendo of his creation. And so if God intends on a new creation, is it possible that the thing that not only should be groaning the most, but the thing that should be understanding that new creation is coming the most is us? Like, we're, we're the ones that should be way ahead of the created order in knowing this is not as it should be, and I know one day new creation is coming. Because when stuff you don't care about gets ruined, you throw it out. But when things you love get wounded, you want to heal them. So if mankind is the crescendo of his creation, what do you think he's most passionate about making new? And so in order to heal his kids, in order to restore them, God knew what it would take. And we're going to celebrate this in communion in just a few moments. But it's the part of the story when God's passion for healing and restoring what had been lost and wounded is the part of the story that he wrote himself into the story. The part of the story where he decided I've got to come make it all new because the thing I'm most passionate about making new is my kids and I know what it's going to take to make them new. That there's so much chaos and there's so much hurt. There's so much formlessness in the world. There's so much void. There's so much empty that God said in order to make it all new, I've got to come and do something about it. And he would do something about it. And he would bring beauty from chaos and he would bring order where there was no order. But this time he wouldn't be singing the stars into existence. This time he would be dying. That in order to be able to bring beauty from ashes, this is the part of the story where God would become ashes himself. Where the God of Genesis 1 would put on flesh that he made and then 30 years later would hang naked on crossbeams in that flesh. Jesus would get undone in order to make us beautiful again. The perfect one would bear our imperfections. The good one, the ultimately good one, would carry our evil so that, so that the new creation might begin in us first. This is what the New Testament talks about. You have the first fruits of the new creation. Where? In you. That's what the Holy Spirit's for, is to begin to birth this new creation in you. So when the world has 
no hope that this could ever come, you could go, yeah, but let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what's in me. Jesus is the firstborn of an entirely new world order. Jesus being resurrected from the dead means that he has begun that work in you. You and I are the first of the new creation until one day kingdom comes and it's all made new. We're the proof. We're the signposts. And so the God of Genesis 1, I hope, helps you behold and wonder about who he is. And I hope the groaning of creation helps you groan yourself. But most of all, I hope that the God of Genesis 1, that you would unfold the story of this kind of making and creating God and know the thing he wanted to, the thing he has made new first is me. Let's pray. Jesus, we're coming to your table now and um, it's a reminder of just how far you were willing to go in this new creation project. And so much of us can feel formless and void. We can feel empty. We can feel despairing. We can feel like there's only vague chaos. And so would you awaken our joyful imaginations that you are a God who loves bringing order and beauty into what was formless and void? Would you help us like children on a playground be able to enjoy what you've given us to enjoy? But also to behold the same God who made Genesis 1 as the same God who hung on Calvary. And as we feast on you now, Jesus, would that get into our marrow where we would believe not just in what you've done, but how good you are for doing it. We ask you this in your name, amen.